0: In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving. But there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 12 of the Behind the Claw podcast. A show for fans of the classic Traveller RPG. I'm Felbrig Napoleon Herriot, and let's start the show By taking a look in the email vault. (laughs) Okay, let's go on to the next segment. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is my galaxy, where I tell you about one of the planets in the Tessesso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs for the Tessesso subsector can be found on the show's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Gafar is a world with one purpose, science and research. When Gefar was discovered, hopes for a colonizable world were quickly dashed when the atmosphere was discovered to be both too thin and too high in nitrogen to naturally support human habitation. Its landmass was split into a large number of small continents, which made it suitable for a purpose that the leadership of the subsector had in mind. Within a few years of discovery, habitation stations were set up on the surface and scientific units were also installed. Researches and experiments that would be unpalatable on an inhabited world were easily carried out without objection on a world dedicated to the purpose. The large watery expanses between each continent meant that large-scale experiments could be carried out without them interfering with each other or with the populace. Each continent is now settled, and not just with scientific staff, but also with their families and a security contingent. The total permanent population of Gafar was logged at around 9,000 during the last Imperial census. Despite that small count, the planet supports a fully featured starport. The configuration of the starport, however, is somewhat unusual. Rather than being in a geostationary orbit, it follows a path that carries it over every continent, so that it is convenient to use from every continent and every scientific base during some part of the day. As each continent supports an independent research station owned and managed by a separate corporate conglomeration that all require access to a working starport, the cost of operating it is spread amongst all of the interested parties. Many of the projects being researched on GAFAR are sealed under the secrecy of the corporations carrying them out. However, some things cannot be hidden, and other projects are in the public domain. Of those known to the public, the following are the most noteworthy. Much of one continent appears to be the subject of a partial terraforming project, with many forms of flora having been planted. A near-constant series of explosions on another continent suggests weapons research. A series of closed and heavily guarded domes in one location is noted for very little traffic. Some have theorised these contain a treasure hoard or possibly a human isolation project. Rocket experiments have been noted in a number of locations. Of a special interest, however, is an apparent attempt at the construction of a space elevator. A large asteroid has been pushed into orbit and a tail of a few miles in length is under construction. The aerodynamic nature of this tail is what has convinced many observers that this is an elevator in progress. There is no government as such on Gafar but a committee of corporate representatives from the companies carrying out research act as some kind of authority. There are a few laws on Gafar, but there are a number of guidelines agreed to by the various parties. One of these agreements is that weapons are forbidden on the planet, so visitors are therefore warned. Although there is no police force on the planet to enforce these laws, you should note that the various companies run their own security forces in any way they see fit on the continents they have control of. Anyone falling foul of the weapons decree, or any of the other decrees, will be subject to the whims of the companies. Ah, no, no way. The way I heard it is when he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. And now it's time for a story seed. Fuel for starships is big money with every aspect of it representing a huge investment. From skimming craft, to powered processing, to storage, and all of it requiring crew and a large number of man-hours to run and to maintain. Thus, it also attracts every kind of subterfuge and skull-duggery. The fuel station, known as Glax by those that are familiar with it, is a fuel processing and filling station positioned above the ecliptic of its home system, very close to one of the common jump points. By placing itself so far out from the planet, it avoids orbit fees and is the fuel station of choice for people jumping through the system, as no time is lost in diving into the gravity well just to collect a new load of fuel. The station is part of a large operation that collects raw fuel from the local gas giant and processes it for sale. There are three parts to the operation. At the gas giant, a skimming operation collects raw fuel, pumps it into cargo pods which are then fired on a slow, ballistic trajectory towards Glax. Each pod runs a small fuel processing plant that spends the six-month journey from the gas giant to the station slowly processing the fuel. The second part of the operation collects the pods at the end of their journey and tugs them to the station. The final part is, of course, the station itself, where ships can dock, fuel up, and purchase overpriced snacks. The problem that the PCs need to solve for the owners of Glax is that the fuel is being sabotaged. At this point, they don't know where it's being done. At the source, on the journey, or at Glax itself? They want the person or people responsible. System checks on all of the equipment have returned negative, so it must be somebody interfering. At the source of the fuel... The operation is run rather like an oil well. Hard, no-nonsense men doing hard work. They are all under a daily pressure to get the raw fuel compressed, packaged and pushed off towards Glax. There's no time to deal with nosy investigators. They all have hard-to-reach quotas to fill. At Glax, the capture crews that collect the pods and take them to the station are likewise under pressure. If they miss a single pod or waste any time they lose bonuses. Likewise, the crews that service the customer's ships are always in a hurry. One possible cause for complaint from the workforce that might have worked its way up into a grudge was a change of pay rates eight months ago, which would change from hourly rates to entirely bonus-based, meaning they can end up working for nothing or for very high rates. Unfortunately, any breakdown in the equipment can lead to a loss of bonus. It has happened a couple of times, and it makes everyone angry. The planetary starport has lost a lot of trade since GLAX started up. Crews that used to come into the station and stay a while spending their credits no longer bother. This has made some very powerful people rather angry at what they perceive as an unfair competition. Is someone dropping an additive contaminant into the fuel at the gas giant? or interfering with the pods in transit where they're completely alone and vulnerable? Or is it happening on GLAX itself? Is someone contaminating fuel tanks or injecting something into the pipes when a ship is being fueled? No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometers. This is Rules Talk, where I investigate some aspect of classic traveller rules. Today, I'm going to have a look at the computer skill. Basically, computer skill gives you the means for programming and operating computers. Book 1 doesn't give you any suggestions for operations, but does detail some programming. You have to work for a week, make a role and your skill... But it doesn't say what number you're actually trying to achieve, so I just assume 8+. plus, Regardless of whether you succeed on the roll, if it's a combat program, the referee gets to roll a secret die roll when it's first used in combat. A result of 7 means that there is a fatal flaw of some sort that can cause the program to run with negative DMs. As it's a secret roll, you don't tell the players that it's actually failed. It doesn't say so, but I suppose that that means the referee rolls for the computer attempting stuff. I should also mention that every service provides computer skill at one point or another. As we move into book two, there is a phase in starship combat where computers can be reprogrammed. Although the book doesn't suggest anything explicit, this could well be where computer operations comes in and you can have players make a computer skill roll to change the programs being used rapidly. With no rules for this, I suggest an 8 plus as per usual. Book 1 suggests there are more programming rules in Book 2, but it really only reiterates those from Book 1. The High Guard character generation grants an automatic level of computer skill if you earn an honours, which I think suggests how important computers are on board a ship. In the Scouts book, computer appears all over the various assignments, showing that it's important to those on scouting service. It's not as prevalent in the merchant's book, suggesting perhaps that a merchant might rely more on programs provided by others, which feeds into the interesting fact that characters with computer skills have a better chance of becoming officers, presumably because that's a rare skill within the merchant's service. Moving on to the robots book, It suggests that if your character has robotics skill, that that can function as computer skill at one level lower. Therefore, robotics 2 becomes computer 1. Presumably because robots are so computerised. I decided to take a look through the Traveller Starter Edition in relation to computers. In here, unlike the other core books, it suggests that to write a computer program to do something, your character needs skill in that something. Another interesting change from the core rules is that instead of rolling a 7 to see if there's a problem with the program, you roll two dice and it's on 11 plus instead. The charts booklet that comes as part of Starter gives you a software list which lists a series of programs, but it also gives you the required skills and what you need to roll in order to craft a program to do that particular function. This is wildly different from the core book. Starter was produced in 83. The core rules were originally published in 77 and then republished in 81. Now it's quite interesting that the ZX81 computer, which was, um, how do you say, it was like the first home computer that became popular, that hit the mainstream in 83 too, along with the film War Games. So what I'm wondering here is if the author had got a handle on what actually using a computer meant by the time the starter rules were actually put together. If your players are going to do any programming, I think the starter rules is the place to go to to see how it's done. They fill out the process without overcomplicating it. But if you don't have starter, I suggest you improvise which skills are needed to make a program. For instance, gunnery can be used for any combat-related programs and navigation used for jumping and manoeuvring, etc. Damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no. No, don't you dare say it was me. Today I'm reviewing the classic Traveller core book, number five, High Guard. This book focuses on the space-going navy and naval-sized starships. The book is the usual size, running to about 60 pages, and has sections for introduction, characters, starships, and constructing starships, and starship combat. The introduction really covers the basic of what interstellar navies are all about and how it's organised within the Imperium. I found this quite a revelation actually. The more I read or rather reread the books, I realise how much I've missed in the past. In this case, it was the structure of the Imperial Navy that surprised me. In that it's actually broken into three independent tiers. Planetary Navy, Subsector Navy and Imperial Navy, all three of which work together. Then the book moves on to creating naval characters. This is a vastly expanded version of what was found in the basic character generation for the Navy. From selecting which of the three tiers your character is going to go into, and which branch of the naval service, right through to what you do in detail during each year of the service. The detail here far outweighs the entire basic character generation system from the core book. And all of this just for naval characters. There are a few more Navy-specific skills added to the system in this book. And creating a character with this system means you usually end up with characters having about twice the number of skills that you get through the basic system. Next, the book moves into details about starships. This is once again expanded from that found in the core rules. Larger ships, new weapons and defences are introduced. You can build military ships of every conceivable shape and size, from corvettes to supercarriers. This is a very crunchy and detailed section. If that's your bag, you're going to really enjoy this. Intership combat for big military vessels is covered next, and talks about having lines of battles with ships in reserve, breaking the enemy's line, and of course, boarding actions. Once again, It has lots of crunchy detail, and for my taste, too much. If you were really trying to fight fleet battles in this level of detail, I suspect the amount of dice that need to be rolled would end up being more important than any tactics. There are a lot of tables for weapons versus shields and armour and critical hits, which frankly turned me off. That said, I don't want a hundred numbers in my games, so my feeling is that this sort of combat isn't for me. Is it worth getting this book, though? Yes. I like the expanded character generation. It really gives you the feel of what Navy life is all about. And even though I've been kind of turning up my nose at ship combat, the expanded ship construction and weapons descriptions add a lot of background material that I found fascinating. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about some weird beastie thief somewhere in the Imperium. Today, the Uperlander. The Uperlander is considered one of the ugliest fish in existence, not only by the people on its homeworld, but by an actual vote within its subsector, a vote funded by a media company promoting their product. Every aspect of this animal seems designed to be unpleasing to the human perception. It does not have any symmetry along or across its body. It does not have eyes, but does have feeding organs so positioned as to appear as eyes. Yet the separating nature of the organs is somewhat revolting to see. It is not smooth-skinned as are most aquatic animals. Although some of its surface is smooth, much of its surface appears to be rotting and flaking. This, however, is its natural state. It has a symbiotic relationship with a microbe that causes this effect, and the upalander breathes through this flaking skin. The beast also has a number of tentacles spread across its body in varying number from 5 to 10, usually. Individual upalanders seem to be able to grow and discard tentacles as needed. These tentacles can be as long as 18 inches and serve a number of purposes. Noted purposes for them include insemination, tasting, defence, and most surprisingly, tool use. Until recently, the upalander was treated as a trash fish by fishermen. If caught, they were simply cut up for bait or thrown back into the water. People were reluctant to eat its greasy meat, and its look did not work as an appetiser. This changed about ten years ago when the son of a fisherman asked to keep a mistakenly captured Upalander as a pet. The creature was placed in a household tank despite the remonstrances of the child's mother. The child noted how the fish could use some of its tentacles to move objects in its tank. But he noticed it was actually something more than just searching for food. The fish was actually building a small cave out of the stones in its tank. This behaviour has since been noted to be a hunting technique. The upalander in the wild builds a line of similar caves which attract small crustaceans into its depths. Much like a human trapper following a trap line out into the woods, the upalander operates a line of such caves. This behaviour was curious to the child, but when the fish grabbed one stone and used it to split another stone, actually shaping the stone for the purposes of building, The child realised he had discovered something special. When the story made it into the local press, it exploded across the planetary scientific journals with headlines proclaiming an intelligent fish had been found. Research was immediately started, and it was discovered that the fish was indeed intelligent. Not human-level intelligent, but certainly clever enough to understand and follow a small number of commands. Training of Upalanda became quite a craze for a while. On its homeworld, the animal is now trained and used in a number of aquatic roles. Fishmen use it to protect traps. Tidal engineers use it to watch and even maintain some parts of their equipment. Subsurface explorers use it to carry cameras into cave systems. And the military even use it for a number of unrevealed purposes. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On the Nets, where I tell you about some website I found somewhere on the internet. I came across a site that you might find of interest. It's simply called Amberzone. I'm not really sure how to describe its content. It's kind of a blog, I suppose. There are a number of useful Traveller and Traveller-like materials there, but you'll need to dig around to find them. It seems they ran a competition a little while ago, and I found some of the competition entries that are linked on the site to be really fascinating. The competition was for detailing reasons for why a system was given an amber warning, such as those on the map. These entries are really quite detailed, just like the My Galaxy segment on this podcast they are superb for the referee to get under the inspirational belt. But the main resource here is a list of links to great sci-fi, traveller and gaming blogs on the left of the homepage. Each of these links might well end up being a resource that appears in this segment in a future date. I highly recommend that you take a look through them. The website's address is http: And that's it. Welcome, Traveller, to the Galactic Audio Library. In this audio library segment, I'm just going to play you a bit of audio I knocked up in the last couple of days. I was inspired from a recent Traveller campaign where the players were using PGMP plasma guns, and that's what the inspiration for this bit of audio was. Private? There's too many of them! Get the rounds off, boy. What was that? I can't stay here. There's a plasma beam. We gotta move. They'll ping us if we move. Look, kid, uh, if we move, they might shoot us. that plasma will go through this rock like Well, I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you called? The spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? He's the guy on the news vids. Which news There are thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, I see. This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about one of the more important or interesting people found across the Imperium. Carl Leona Huell is a scientist who has dedicated his life to research of the X-beam. The X-beam is a pulse-based energy beam, capable of cutting through pretty much any known substance. During an interview with the light science magazine Repoxy Invented, he was asked why he named his new beam the X-beam. In response, he laughed and said he chose X-beam because X represented the unknown, and the irony of that appealed to him. The interviewer didn't question that fact any further and we can only suppose that his in-depth knowledge of the X-Beam development was what powered the irony. After announcing his invention and going on a publicity tour to raise funds, he was the subject of a successful kidnap. A local crime boss wanted to get control of both Carlyona and his invention for nefarious purposes. The crime boss wanted to be able to cut his way into bank vaults and other similar secure locations and wanted to have Carleona build a portable X-beam for his hired thugs. The criminals also attempted to get hold of Carleona's equipment, but found themselves outgunned by the military that had suddenly taken over his laboratories. Thus they stuck Carleona in a basement laboratory and set him to work building a new X-beam emitter. During the three months that he was out of sight, Carleona set to work but not building an X-beam emitter. He told the crime boss that was what he was doing, yet in reality he simply constructed a pulse-capable plasma emitter, which he used to blast a tunnel out of the basement and make an escape. He also rigged the plasma device to overload shortly after his escape, which caused enough confusion and damage to allow him to slip away almost unnoticed. The gang did chase after him, but by that time he had reached the inner city and was able to seek safety in a police station. Of course, the whole incident catapulted him to fame as the kick-ass scientist hero, a role he deprecates. But it has been noticed that anyone mentioning that title to him causes a wry smile to cross his face. The military that had protected his laboratory during the criminal attack soon lost interest in the technology when Carleona used mathematics to prove that the technology's high energy use and extremely short range of less than a thousandth of an inch made it unviable as a weapon. To avoid a repeat kidnapping, he moved his laboratory to an orbital facility. However, this was not the end of Carlione's adventures. A pirate raid into the system where he was working led to a situation that once again forced him into the limelight. A local Navy vessel, a Tenton fighter, was blasted in the fight with the pirates and sent hurtling towards the station where he was working. The station itself had no weapons, so could not destroy the disabled fighter, and no other ships were within intercept range. Carleona, being a man of action, jumped into a vac suit and crawled out onto the surface of the station. Once there, he disconnected one of the external water tanks and opened a valve, using the contents of the tank as a kind of propellant. Once he had it moving, he set the tank on a collision course with the incoming fighter, and rode the tank almost to the point of impact, only leaping clear in the last few seconds. The impact threw the dead fighter into a new trajectory away from the station, and saved the lives of thousands. Carleona was picked up by a shuttle some hours later, just before his oxygen ran out. Once again, he was a hero, but rather than seek adulation, he dived back into his work, and continues to this day on turning his invention into a device for use by rescue services. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. So we've reached the end game once again. I'd like to send special thanks to Brian for providing his manly voice to today's show. And as usual... If you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items or short stories, send them in to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrig Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for Jump.